Hello again, Fortune Seekers, and welcome back to the Mega Moth Studios official podcast. This week, we made a game. Now we're unpacking the game. We're going to dive into the pop culture influences that uh, have seeped their way into X Seekers of Fortune this week on the official Mega Moth Studio podcast. Welcome back to the show, folks. Uh, I'm your host, Joel, and as always, I'm joined by my creative partner and best friend, Danny. Hey, what's up, Joel? <laughs> uh, nothing much, Danny. Uh, how, was your, so, uh, how was your birthday, buddy? Um, fairly uneventful. I mostly uh-huh. did chores around the house after I got back from my trip to Houston, but we'll be getting more into that here in just a second. Spoiler uh, yeah. First, I wanted to say that last. Uh, so on last week's episode, episode seven, I believe we discussed the community building both in person and online. So if you want to hear more thoughts about that, go back one episode in the feed. Um, today on episode eight, we're going to be discussing all the wonderful influences from our, you know, our pop culture fascinations that have managed to make their way into X Seekers of Fortune and answer a very important question about how those have, you know, have influenced the game and people's perceptions of them. Um, now, if this is your first time ever hearing about the show, or if this is your first time ever hearing about the game X Seekers of Fortune, then please do us a favor and seek us out on your preferred social media um application or you know site platform i think they call those applications and sometimes platforms i think you're fine all right well i'm going to say uh you're don't be too hard on yourself buddy (laughs) i'm catholic i have to be (laughs) so uh we but yes please uh so if this is your first time hearing about the game x seekers of fortune please go to your favorite social media platform and look us up to find more information. We're on TikTok at Megamoth Studios. We're on Instagram at X underscore seekers underscore of underscore fortune. On Facebook, we're just X Seekers of Fortune. And if you just go to Google and type in X Seekers of Fortune, we're going. our official website is going to be the top website that you're going to find there. On our website, you're going to be able to find a link both to a website where you can play the game called Tabletopia and to our Discord server, where if you join that server, you're going to be able to find like-minded folks who will be able to show you how to play the game uh, pretty much week around. But specifically, you'll want to tune into that Discord server on Tuesday nights because from 8 to midnight, we do Tuesday Night X, where we get our community all together so new players can find uh, veterans to teach them the game and you can find your own rival yeah, shout out to the X Seekers of Fortune Discord group because they're awesome. It's growing, and um, I'm really excited by the uh, the new folks that keep coming in and, and making the uh, the community even cooler, bringing arts and crafts and all kinds of stuff to the uh, to the mix. And uh, yeah, it's like there's a little bit of everything in there, but lots and lots of opportunities to learn and play. So yeah, come yeah. hang out with some cool people. Come out, yeah, make some new friends, make some new rivals on the X Secrets of Fortune Discord server. And yeah, we had a quite a boost in the population of the server over this past week. Uh, Danny, we just had an event on, an, at Uncanny Games and Comics in Richmond, Texas, which is, would you call it a suburb of Houston? Maybe, I guess so. I don't, okay. I don't really know. But is it Uncanny Games and Comics or Comics and Games? I always mix it up. It's, all, it's Comics and Games. Sweet. Sorry, Ender. 
We're not great <laughs> yeah, and at thank this. You, <laughs> yeah, thank you, Ender, for having us out. Uh, we met Ender during the Houston uh, Comic Palooza, and he very quickly gave us his information after he demoed X Seekers of Fortune and told us that he wanted to have us to his store. And now two months later, we finally got to his store, held an event there, and it was super successful, at least in my opinion. Danny, how was the event for you? Oh, it was incredible. I, um, so many people came out and the people who did come out like hung out for, for hours and hours. And by the end of the night, I honestly felt like we had made like five or six friends that, uh, well, I mean, one, they're all in the discord now, but I mean, the, the, they were so gracious to us, uh, welcoming us into their store, playing the game, uh, giving us amazing feedback. Um, and then just jumping on the discord after and just hanging out like we're old friends. And, you know, that's part of what this game is about is, you know, making friends. And as Joel said, finding rivals. Um, but yeah, I couldn't have had more fun and I'm really grateful to everyone who turned out and, uh, for the experience generally. What about you, Joel? What, what did you think? Well, I thought it was, I thought it couldn't have gone much better. Um, we had both people who came with the intent to play X Seekers of Fortune with us, which was amazing. But we also had a few people who were just there at the store. Um, I wouldn't say randomly, but, you know, they were there for other reasons. And we got to talking to them and got the, to get them to sit down and play. And I think my favorite moment of the night, not including all of the wonderful people from the store, but like it's just so much there's something special about getting you know going up and talking to somebody i think we talked about this last episode with uh making in-person uh connections with people uh randomly when you know you're doing these sorts of game demos so i went up to a older woman and a young a, a little a young man a little boy uh and i think it was a grandmother and a grandson and he was there for Yu-Gi-Oh cards and boy did he love himself some Yu-Gi-Oh and this uh, this older woman, his grandmother, you know, she was just along for the ride, uh, I thought. So I invited them both to play the game, and she definitely seemed interested in the game uh, more so than I thought. And it turned out she was actually a big-time gamer herself. She had years of gameplay experience, and she even mentioned that she was going to be at the San Diego Comic Convention for, the, you know, to volunteer to run the game hall. And I was really happy about that because, you know, hey, we make our assumptions, we, you know, see people and we just sum them up. I did not take her as a game player. I thought she was just there because her grandson was into Yu-Gi-Oh, which granted she was, but her grandson was into Yu-Gi-Oh because he comes from a long line of gamers. And we got them to sit down at the table and I believe you proctored their game or helped them walk through the game. But I remember my favorite quote, which I heard from you and tell me if I'm getting this wrong, but essentially she did something to get ahead in the game and he was perplexed because he didn't know she was good at games. And she said something like, well, you haven't played me in a game I actually understand yet. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. She infiltrated him and he <laughs> got like really, uh, <laughs> he got really tilted. And then he, and then she's like, yeah, well, it's not, not, you haven't played a game with me that I understand. Not so easy now, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Which is the wonderful thing about X Seekers of Fortune. It is easy to, or easier to learn than a lot of games, especially a lot of the TCGs out there that, have quite the learning, you know, the steep incline on the learning curve. Um, I think we can get people to sit down and understand the basic mechanics of the game within a few minutes. And that really excites me because it makes it so much easier to share the game and bring them into the community. Yeah, I mean, I think even board gamers who don't have the TCG background pick it up pretty quickly because we use basically what I guess is called set collection in board game parlance. 
And, um, you know, it just, I think it clicks with them because that's something that is a familiar mechanic in the tabletop space as well. Yeah. And we're going to be getting, uh, in a future episode, we don't want to commit to which one or how many episodes in the future, but we're going to be getting more into board game terminology versus TCG terminology. Cause we're going to have a very special guest who is a board game expert, but, uh, you know, we just want to, you know, for you long time, early and listeners, a flan expert, what he's a flan expert as well, apparently flan expert. Yes. So we'll be seeing <laughs> him soon on the show. Um, but why don't we go ahead? I think we got a very special week this week because this is the first time that I didn't write the question of the week. Our community members submitted it on Discord. And I want to go ahead and ask this question of you, Danny. And I'm sure I'll, I'll step in with my own commentary. But let me ask the question and give you the first bite of the apple of answering. And I believe this comes in. I'm pulling is it, it a up poison now. apple? <laughs> I could be. I <laughs> am. Okay. Um, I, I hope it's true to you. You know, you're a noob uh, still when you're podcasting, when you choose as your beverage a fizzy drink, because then you're like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, you long. could. A, it makes sounds as you drink it, and B, it could cause some gas. <laughs> oh, no. Anyways, so we have the question of the week, and it's from, at least according to his Discord handle. Now, do you know who Danny? I do. I do. Okay. Um, I will not shut him out on the podcast specifically, but okay. uh, because he asked me not to, but I will oh. say that he is a very nice person. Okay, great, great. Well, um, let's see if, if his questions are as nice as uh, he is in person. From our Discord asks, was it always the plan to use crude placeholder art for initial playtesting, AI art for blind public playtesting, and commissioned art uh, and a commissioned artist for the final art. Um, he actually has a three-part question. Should I stop there and then do yeah, the follow-ups? Let's, let's do each part at, at okay. one at a time because it'll be hard for the audience to remember and even harder for me to remember. Um, <laughs> Fair. Me too. And I'm reading the question. <laughs> um, so I think the short answer there is no, it hasn't always been the plan. I mean, part of it was, right? So, I mean, we always knew we were going to just use kind of like black and white clip art for the initial prototype. Uh, just because that's just easy, right? It's quick, it's available. You're going to be changing cards very rapidly at the beginning because that's the point where you're least tethered to any sort of like cohesive, you know, mechanical plan or anything that, you know, is going to resemble your final game. So there's going to be rapid iteration at the beginning. Um, <clears throat> and then we, the AI art was something that we had debated for a while whether or not we were going to use it. And then eventually I got to the point where I was able to put a proof of concept forward. Now, whether or not we were going to ever go to print with AI art, there was a time where we thought we might. And the reason why wasn't because we thought, you know, that it was 100% ethically in the clear to do so. Um, you know, we've always thought that, you know, the ethics around AI art were something that commercially speaking um, was something that was going to need to be um, discussed at great length in the court of public opinion. And we didn't want to disrespect any artists whose um, work had gone into the training models uh, without compensation. So, um, you know, the, to the extent that we, we had planned to go out to the world with AI art, it was really only in the case that we felt like the game was never going to be big enough that we were going to commercialize it in a way where we would be profiting off of it. Um, and at the point that we felt like we had developed the game um, well enough to commercialize it and bring it to market, that was the point where we very clearly stated, okay, 
we're, we're going to make money off of this. So artists are going to make money off of this. Yeah, I think I, I really don't have much to add there, Danny. That was pretty concise and to the point. I mean, yeah, I would highly recommend don't put too much into effort into art or design until you feel like you have a game that's worth putting effort into art and design. And then, yeah, I agree. We toyed with the idea for a little while uh, of moving forward with AI art. But like you said, once we felt like we were seeing feedback at the magnitude we were and that this game wasn't just going to be a little hobby horse for the two of us, but it could be something bigger, um, which, you know, uh, all signs point to definitely. We thought we're, we don't want to muddy this game's potential um, popularity by having it swept up in the AI artist, uh, you know, um, the AI art versus, you know, re like human artist debate. And we felt also that we come from a Magic the Gathering background and other uh, TCGs and board games. We've always loved the human touch. The art is always what brings us in. The gameplay is what keeps us around. So we wanted to have a game that had that sort of art that when you're walking past it at the game store or somebody's playing at the lunch table while you're at school, you know, um, you, you see it and you want to be drawn into it. And we think that the AR art is pretty good, but we think a human artist is going to really give it that polish to give it the um, just that uh, tractor beam quality that we're looking for. The je ne sais quoi. Mm -hmm, exactly. So let's move on to the second part of his question. Okay. So uh, let's see. So also asked, how much did your initial ideas and concepts for art inform for them? Sorry, I'm real. I'm uh, a little bit of a poor reader. So let me try that again. How much did your initial ideas for the art inform the AI art and how much of each do you anticipate will translate to the final art form? Sorry, the, uh, maybe it's uh, maybe I just need to rephrase what he wrote. I think it's better for reading in your head than it is for reading out loud. How much did your initial ideas? I've got it though. I, I, I can recapitulate the question if you want me to. So basically, you know, how much of the, the art did we go into, you know, AI, um, sorry, mm -hmm mid-journey with an idea of what we wanted to produce and then how much of what we produced out of mid-journey do we expect to translate into the final art okay so sort yeah sort of like mm -hmm. you know like how much i guess maybe another way of saying this would be how much has mid-journey changed like our initial idea of what the card is and what the theme of the card is did it make any changes by the work that it gave back to us and has that now is that now going to translate into how we try to uh describe the art to the artist? Yeah, so that's a okay. great question. Um, so there was, the answer is on the first part of the question, which is you know how much of our vision of what the art should be, um, were we successfully able to translate through mid-journey? And the answer is like some of them, like fairly close. I mean, you're never getting your, your exact vision out of mid-journey. It's kind of like your playing a game of telephone and with with in with an artist and like there's someone who has some sort of like weird it's not like they, they're hard of hearing it's just like they hear what they want to hear and it's like sometimes close and sometimes not and then they whispered in the ear of the artist and the artist is like are you sure and they're like just paint it and then <laughs> paint four versions of it um <laughs> basically though like uh, yeah some of it we, we we got very close to nailing like sometimes you'll you'll put it in and it's like wow we got that fast and then sometimes it's like literally weeks and um 
and and I've had abandoned multiple concepts. So I'll start sometimes I'll start one place and I'll go to another one and go to another one. I'll finagle it. I'll rewrite it. I'll scrap it down to just the bare concept and then build on top of it. Um, there's a lot of different layers to it. Um, and then sometimes something comes out that completely surprises you. So I'd say like in terms of the amount of like Joel and I's vision that went into the final art based on like the con concept conversations we had beforehand, I mean, probably something like 60 to 70% maybe. Um, it's, it's not a ton. But the beauty of working with, with the real artist is that now we get to recover that extra 35%, right? So um, what, what we're doing now is we're taking our favorite elements of the AI art, you know, conceptually that the AI art came up with and saying, okay, this is what we want to preserve because we're emotionally attached to it now. Um, you know, please do your rendition of it. We're not asking you to do, a, you know, a copy paste of AI art. We're asking you to just say, hey, cool. We really love this monkey running away with a, a basket of, of jewels and bananas. Can you bring that to even more life and put it in the bazaar instead of just like some weird cave or what have you? Um, there's a lot of, and Joel, this is what I would like you to, you know, maybe elaborate on. There's a lot of points where we were trying to infuse more storytelling into the art. And, you know, you would say, hey, I want this, this, and this. And I'd be like, that's nice, but Midjourney doesn't understand this, much less this, this, and this. So what, yeah. what, what would you say about that? Um, I would say like, there, there's a couple of things that crossed my mind while you were uh, answering. And one thing that I would say is it was definitely, I think, a great way of discovering new, new potential styles. Because as you went across the, as you as you dived into the AI art, you realized that you need to kind of reference an artist that already exists or a specific style. And I think that that kind of got us to a place where there's this certain, you know, old adventure comic or adventure book cover style that I think we started to go to the well more and more of as we got towards the end of the AI art process. Not that it's completely over. We might still tune up a few more going into like printing uh, our first round of prototype decks. But um, I just think it was a really great experiment to see what, what you know, kind of like, okay, this this looks like our game. This doesn't look like our game. It gave us that process without having to annoy an artist, you know, by having them produce like one art or a variety of arts over and over again for us just to tell them, no, that's not it. That it, You know, I can't put my finger on it, but this is not what our game looks like. So it kind of hopefully got us through that part of the process together without having to annoy a talented artist <laughs> in order to do it. Um, so that's one thought I had. Um, and then another, hmm. yeah, I would say that the other thought I have is, yeah, the two of us, I really love it when the art on the cards tell stories and things that can help tell the story are consistent characters from one card to another so that you can see their journey and piece it together yourself. It's like a good a good trading card game. When the art tells the story, it feels like you're given all the puzzle pieces and you have to figure out, well, what comes before what? If I had the entire set of all the cards in front of me, uh, what's the first thing that happens? What's the middlemost thing that happens? What's the last thing that happens? And, you know, hopefully between the art and the flavor text or other things, other clues on the card, you can kind of put that together. The problem with Midjourney is, Try, you're trying to get it to make the same character look uh, close enough to the way they're supposed to look, you know, over two different artworks. 
we had a little bit of luck with using uh, photo references. Specifically, you used a photo reference of me from when I did my Linza app. Like everybody, like everybody on Facebook decided that they were going to use the Linza app to create AI avatars of themselves, and then immediately decided it was unethical and stopped doing it. But we took some of those photo, those uh, like polished, illustrated visuals of me, and you said you you use that as a reference for Midjourney. So with a you know, kind of a, what is it? Copy paste, copy paste, you know, or a, co a copy of a copy sort of thing. It actually worked out really well for creating the character Jericho Stone, who looks a little bit like me. He's definitely the A-list Hollywood actor version of me. And uh, it gave influence to the artist that we have working on the game right now to further redesign him. And now I feel like he's fully uh, not, uh, not not enough like me for people to get confused, but we'll see. My, my memory of that was that I like produced Jericho Stone. You're like, it needs to look more like me. So try again. Anyways, well, I, I think we differ in our memories, but um, I'm going to push forward and say that while that system was working okay, it still would give a variety of Jericho Stones. Like, he would like there'd be just small features that were off, like maybe his nostrils weren't quite the same, but they were close enough to where it felt like the same artist just, but they just messed up versus like, I do like it when you, you allow enough differences in the character design so that two artists can approach the character in two totally different ways of like levels of realism or, you know, the handsome versus the crude, things like that. But it just wasn't different enough for it to look intentional. It just looked like a mistake. And also it would often render Jericho at different age ranges. Like, so we had some Jerichos that looked like they were in their late twenties, early thirties. And then we also had some that looked like, you know, mid fifties. And that was a cool concept for the idea of like, well, down the line, we could have like an, a set where Jericho's older, like, you know, we can age up with Jericho, but right now we want to tell one story in one specific time period. And it, it, even if it was a few years of time period, which it's not going to be, it's probably going to be a story that takes place over like a few days, a few weeks, maybe. Um, yeah, we just we just needed more consistency. So you couldn't really t get it to render the same character twice. And we only really had luck with Jericho. We tried a few different character concepts, but without having those sort of uh, Linza assets for other, well, or did you? You did have Linza assets of other like people who volunteered to be like the model or the basis of the characters. I had one other model other than myself. Uh -huh. For me, the, the whatever Linza put out, I don't know. It never looked quite as much like me as it did with uh, Jericho looking like you. And the other person didn't really look like them, but it did produce a character that mm -hmm. you know. I think if you look at the concept art for Silence the Ego, that's probably the closest to that person's art on a card. Yeah. And, but lastly, I think to answer the last part of this question, before we move on to the third part of their question, I would say, I think that the, the AI art have set our expectations for a certain level of quality. And so it has made us a little maybe pickier about like looking at people's artwork and thinking if it's right for our game. Um, but I don't know. I, I I reserve the right to be surprised. Like we're right now having the art for Unearth done again, and that one is uh, was a hero shot of Jericho Stone, and so I was very you know it was very important to me that it nailed it and that it looked a lot like me. I mean 
that you know the character evolved in the way that they looked. Uh, anyways, uh, but like, it, but before it was just like a portrait with like some action going on behind him. But now that we're actually working with an artist, I don't want to give the whole thing away. But now it actually looks like a scene from a comic, and it's actually telling a story, like with the layers of information going on. And that's what a real artist can do because uh, the AI art seems to be able to do one focal point thing very well. But if you're trying to tell like a multi-layered story within a single frame, it's not going to be able to get like three focal points that all like, you know, sort of correlate with each other. And I think that was the, the issue that you ran into. Am I right? Yeah, I think that that's a good good summary of it. It's I think eventually you're going to be able to really get um, mid-journey to do consistent things across uh, scenes with characters. I think eventually someone is going to put together a program that is much more user friendly for, you know, everyday people who aren't going to be deep in the weeds of prompt crafting. And it's going to allow you to like set models for individual characters and, and you're going to be able to kind of create um, whole references for places and people and things. And it's going to allow you to construct, you know, scenes that feel consistent and people are going to be able to do incredible, incredible things. So um, in fact, well, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but um, there's some really amazing stuff going on right now with just AI being able to generate entire TV episodes of TV shows. So um, it, it, visually and, and audibly, you know, in terms of deep fake voices and animation, look it up. There's like a whole AI produced South Park episode that while doesn't quite capture the same level of comedic um, quality as let's say like a really genuinely produced episode of South Park written by Matt Stone and Trey Parker it like does a fairly good impersonation yeah I would I would say you shared that with me um, either yesterday or today and yeah I would say a, a South Park is definitely the one that they can make the most um, you know like a close representation of due to its art style um, and a lot of the actors, I would say, uh, a lot of the non main cast actors, when they do an impersonation, they do tend to go for like some sort of, they, I, I, I might it's eat stilted. my words later. Yeah. It's just like whenever, like often their impersonations tend to be like sort of monotone and in a, because that's like where the comedy comes from is like, they, they nail like the person's like, you know, almost public speaking voice and they just make that part of the joke. And like I said, I'll probably end up eating my words as somebody as like, you know, people in the discord throw up like all these different versions of like them have playing characters and doing it very wacky and high dynamics. But the characters they had in that episode were like Tom was a Tom Cruise and Elon, Elon Musk. Musk. I can't yeah. wait for the discord to evolve to like we release an episode of the podcast and just get roasted. mercilessly. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, no, I, I, I deserve it. So, you know, I guess I'll... there's lots of roasting coming in our future. I can tell. I know I'm I'm pre I'm preparing it for for it by you know just taking your questions of the week in stride, uh, or your something randoms in stride, uh, and then finally, and I think we kind of already touched on this, but I'll just go ahead and round out three part question: Were there any cards that changed because of the AI art, or cards that look the most different from now from what you initially conceptualized? I do want to take a stab at this first and say. I can't say that any cards are all that different from what I conceptualized for two reasons. One, I did my best not to conceptualize the card too far in advance. At most, I would have like a rough idea that I would share with Danny when we were talking about the card specifically. I just didn't want to be 
let down. But two, even if I did conceptualize the art on the card, we have come so far from like what I thought before we started to having the artwork now that any memory I had of that is probably obliterated by the AI art that we either made along the way or that we ended up with because either it was ridiculous and funny along the way and that distracted from my initial concept or you know the art came out so well that I can't think of the card as any other way. Uh, do you have any memories of like us actively changing a card because like the art came back? I feel like there had to be at least one or two that we like changed the name of. Uh, maybe Jewel the Mirror Pool comes to mind. Yeah, maybe Jewel. I don't. I don't really have a clear memory of it. I I can't say that it didn't happen because I do remember there were a couple times where we got some art out of it that we were like, oh, we have to we have to use this, um, and. Um, Certainly, it's it's something that I'm always looking at when I generate something that doesn't work for the card I'm doing. I'm like, okay, I'm going to design a card for this concept art <laughs> because I want to put it on something and play with it. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to, you know, like I said, I'm really racking my brain. I know that it's like one of those things, like you said, we would actually, you know, we might have to change. Uh, we've been talking about upping our graphics uh, package uh, for, per episode it might be worth going through and doing like an episode where we just go through or stream where we go through all of the cards from you know the first concept all the way through what they look like in the game now because I have all those files saved I just have to you know do a little organizing to make it a clean presentation so maybe we'll rediscover some memories doing that but without the artwork right in front of us it is really hard to remember those things but I do appreciate the question and I think ultimately what I would say is uh, to your question, to answer, I think the underlying question, AI art is definitely a tool that can be used. I don't know if the, the, you know, I'm still out on the ethics of actually using it to make money or monetizing it, you know, like in selling the AI art directly to the consumer. Uh, but certainly I at do, scale, right? Like I yeah, think it, it's a little yeah. different if it's like very, very local. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe, I don't know, but like if you're going to market with something that you're going to reach a lot of people, I think it, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily encourage people to use AI art. Yeah, but I would say for the purposes of what we used it for so far, which is to create a prototype that looks and, you know, looks a lot like the final game. Like if we didn't have the AI, the AI art, at most we would have sketches like maybe inky, you know, black and white inked sketches that I would have done on my own. Or we would still be doing the uh, clip art. And I think that that wouldn't really give players the actual full feeling of what the game's going to feel like. Because even if we're not using the AI art, AI art in the final game, this is what the game is overall going to look like. Uh, just slightly different. So it gives the right vibe. And I think that that's going to be really important moving forward is that you not only can you know curate or, or, or shape the rules of your game as you develop it, uh, independently, but you can also shape the vibe of your game if you just have a few, uh, a little bit of AI art uh, prompt knowledge and some basic illustrator skills to, you know, create your card frames and get the artwork in there. So I would highly recommend experimenting with it. Sweet. All right. Well, uh, let's see what we got next. That was our question of the week, which, like I said, that was actually submitted by our Discord community. 
on our Discord server. So if you have a question, as long as we keep getting them in, I'll keep letting you guys write the question of the week for me because it saved me some time this week. Uh, otherwise, we'll go back to, uh, you know, a regular uh, and me writing the ask question. if you want to ask and you're not on the Discord, just join the Discord. There's server links um, on the TikTok and Instagram and on the website. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if you go to our TikTok page spe specifically and Instagram, there's going to be a link tree and that link tree will branch you out to every single thing that we have that we want you to check out. So, you know, definitely go to the Instagram or the TikTok page and look, look, look for the link tree in the bio. Um, so let's move on, Danny, really quick to the main topic. So um, as you know, we uh, recently talked about the theme of X Seekers of Fortune and how we went from a basic, uh, a basic might not be the right term, but something that would have looked more like uh, Dungeons and Dragons or Diablo style fantasy and moved into this, uh, you know, desert uh, 1930s action serial, action adventure serial uh, of, you know, uh, kind of, um, you know, Indiana Jones inspired uh, setting. So why don't we, you know, kind of dig into what elements came from that and what elements of our game came from other things. So I do want to start out with a very spicy question for you just to get the conversation started. Okay. <laughs> Embracing myself. Danny, are we just a ripoff? Oh, come on. We say... <laughs> We say that we take influence from adventure serials like Indiana Jones and adventure video games. What makes us unique? Okay, well, that's a softball. Obviously, we're a ripoff. I think, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, unless Disney's listening, then, you know, clearly, no, we're not. No, I mean, this is something that I think is a really great conversation starting point. Are we a ripoff? <clears throat> When we were in our early 20s and making films, I think one of the biggest challenges we had was everything was about how do we do something that's original, right? Everything has to be original. And you try and you try and you try and you end up coming up with these convoluted ideas that nobody wants to watch all in the name of trying to do something no one's ever done before. And then at a certain point in life, you realize that making art is really about participating in the ongoing conversation of culture. And in order to do that, you have to comment on what comes before you and leave something behind for the people who come after you. So, yes, we rip people off and people will rip us off. And that's the way it's supposed to work. It's an ongoing evolution of ideas. It's, you know, every generation takes the uh, stories put forth by the generation that came before and they create new versions for their generation from those archetypes. So yeah, with you know, is Jericho Stone our updated version of Indy? In some sense, yes, but not solely. It's not like he's just Indiana Jones. He's everything from the genre of adventure serials and video games and you know, Uncharted and Tomb Raider and you know, Doctor Who and you well, know, Star I always Wars like to make sure to reference uh, Brendan Fraser from The Mummy. That's that's more of who I see Jericho as being in the the uh, shape of. Right. And not all of them are Disney properties right now. I mean, eventually, maybe. <laughs> yes. But come on. If Disney buys everything, they can't hold us accountable and be like, well, why is it only Disney properties? Like, well, you keep buying things. You yeah, know? exactly. I mean, what, what is a Disney property? We've X created a fortune at the moment. But yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. Lots <laughs> of fingers. Uh, yeah. No, I completely agree with you. And that's, that, that is like something that's definitely a maturation point. And it's like when you, when it finally makes sense to you, there, I, 
want to say it's Jim Jarmusch said, you know, at least he's attributed the quote of good artists borrow, great artists steal. And it's true. It's like, you know, like what influenced you as a child is going to be something that's especially up until recently, what influenced people as a child would be lost to time by the time that they were in their 30s or 40s and the children growing up wouldn't have those same, you know, TV shows, comic books, you know, uh, you know, stories being told around a campfire. And at that point, you could kind of, you know, take something that was, from, you know, from your past and make it your own. There's a great YouTube series that, I, unfortunately, I think it was only like, it's somebody actually had the gumption to make a one-off YouTube series and then never really follow up on it. I could be wrong, but it was called, uh, I think Everything's a Remix or something to that effect. But it was essentially like, I think at one point they took, uh, Star Wars and star because Star Wars is a huge example of this where George Lucas just kind of took pick and chose from 19 you know the 1940s 50s serials that he grew up with that in the science fiction genre and in fact he wanted to make a Flash Gordon movie and he just couldn't get the rights so he had to make his own property uh, and he made and he made Star Wars out of it and somebody took only movies that were made before Star Wars and cut together a like a short film that was every beat from star Wars, like, you know, and all these iconic shots and scenes and sequences just basically were taken from other movies and sewn together and then ran through the filter of like, you know, a specific production designer, a specific cinematographer, you know, creating one cohesive universe. And, you know, it's like you take all this stuff that was old and you make it new again. And that's basically what artists do. And they kind of reinvent it and revolutionize it. And I definitely think, especially now that I'm older, like the artists who try to be 100% unique are the ones who I'm least interested in hearing from. Um, I feel like they're just going to make a whole bunch of nonsense, honestly. Well, yeah, so. in a sense that it's like they're trying to step outside of culture and there's nothing wrong with doing something original. It's just that sometimes you swing and miss when you do something original and just because something is a remix doesn't mean that it doesn't isn't valuable and it doesn't bring you know joy and happiness to people yeah and what else are we doing this for than to bring joy happiness unforgettable moments um well i think that answers that question so what was <laughs> yeah no what makes us unique is kind of the thing that i think you kind of ended up on there which i haven't really kind of addressed which is Honestly, what makes us unique is, is, is us, right? Like, it's not just that all these things influenced us. It's that these influences are channeled through us and we're infusing them with our experiences and our perspective and we're laying them out there for the world and arranging them the way that we feel inclined to do so based on what's made us us, right? So, I mean, I encourage anyone out there who's working on their own projects, be them film, television, games, whatever it is, um, stories, art, paint, whatever, um, little thingies that you make out of, like uh, yarn. What are they? Like crochets? Are they called the crochets? Uh, I guess so. Yeah. Crochet. You crochet make crochets? Sure. Do it yeah. your way. You know, mm -hmm. like you want to make a little crochet that's like some, someone else's crochet thing? Do that. That's fine. But it's going to be your crochet thing because you made it with your little fingers. And you're going to make it the way you want to. You're going to choose the color of the yarn that speaks to you. You're going to make the eyes the diameter that makes you feel like it's cutest. Everyone brings their own things to the table. Um, and, and 
you shouldn't feel overly worried about whether or not someone's going to come and be like, well, you know, I saw a stuffed octopus that looked pretty similar to that in dimensions on a shelf uh, that uh, was like with the Beanie Baby collection. So that's not very original. That is, yeah, that is very true. But I do think that that does bring up the other side of this coin, which is when you do delve into these, uh, when you do pick a theme or pick a, 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 a setting, you know, and a type of story, they do come with certain what, what are called tropes, which is a word that I know, but I don't know if I could define, but it is sort of like the things that you want to hit, you know, certain beats that are expected by the audience that they want to see what you do uh, your own thing with. I think a great example of this is um, I remember when I saw the movie Let the Right One In, which is a vampire film. Um, one of the things that I thought really made that movie stand out was that they hit so many of the tropes of a vampire story that you're familiar with. And they did it in very iconic and unique ways. Like each time that like a, a, a tropey moment happened, it felt like it was a, a painting, you know, or it was like, you know, a very m modern take on it. Like there's a point where a woman who has been uh, bitten, I, I will, I guess I'll say spoiler alert for a movie that is definitely over a decade old, but a woman who has been bitten, she's turning into a vampire and she knows she's turning into a vampire. She, this is unintended. The vampire didn't mean to do this to her. It just didn't get to finish its meal. And the woman is in a hospital room and she knows like it's either like, you know, I guess she somehow inherently knows that it's either life as a vampire or death. And so she asks her fiance to open up the curtains as the sun's coming up and the shot of her burning up, like and becoming completely engulfed in flames is seared into my memory. Uh, beautiful, beautiful shot, beautiful moment from the movie. And I think that that's like, I guess my example of, uh, of what a trope, a, a well done trope is. So you have to know your tropes and Danny, do you, are there any particular tropes that we've hit that you're particularly proud of or any tropes that we haven't hit that you're meaning to double back and try to get, you know, now that we have a, uh, that we're working with living, living, breathing artists who we can, you know, communicate these ideas to. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the idea of, I mean, labyrinth is one of my favorite tropes, the idea that, you know, you, you find yourself in, in some sort of maze or catacombs, um, you know, the secret cavern, you know, of, of the mirror pool or, um, the big bazaar of ruckus bazaar or like the, the mysterious crater where some things come down. I mean, there's, there's all these different tropes and not all of them are strictly, you know, something that you've seen in, in, in a Indiana Jones movie or a Laura Croft video game, right? Like these are things that we, we pull from all over the place. And one of my favorite things to do when creating is genre blending, right? Like finding areas where we can take things from other you know, genres of fiction and say, okay, well, what if that happened in this setting, you know? And so, um, yeah, I mean, what about you? What are your favorite trips that, that you've seen here? Well, that's a, uh, I, well, I always come back to the one that I think we're, you know, another example of why you can't totally rely on mid journey, but I was really, you know, if you watch an Indiana Jones film, the number of skeletons that you're going to see or decomposing corpses, you know, that you're going to see is, pretty high and I'm pretty sure that goes for anything like that's like a trope of the treasure seeking or the tr the treasure hunting genre is people who have come before you who have made it this far but something they did caused them to get murdered get killed you know by a trap or you know maybe they they fell and you know down the chasm that your your the main character saw 
you know, anything like that. Or maybe, you know, they were killed by somebody, somebody else who was like looking for the same treasure. And so you, your adventurer is always running into skeletons along the way. And I really, really, really want there to be a depiction of a skeleton on a artwork. Um, uh, and I think I know which card I want it to be on, but I'll let that be a secret until we actually get to it, you know, and display, uh, unveil the, the real art that we're going to be moving forward with. Uh, but that's a huge trope that we haven't hit yet because Midjourney, you know, has content filters for good reason. And, you know, but the, they have to be broad, you know, broadly applied. So I don't think you were able to really play that much with like death, you know, de decomposing bodies, skeletons, things like that. Don't misspell Pulitzer on Midjourney if you want to sleep ever again. Oh, okay, I'll take your word for it. I guess that's <laughs> one that I haven't... Got, come in contact with but the but yeah i think you hit a lot of my favorites uh as well um i think that the alfox is a good example maybe yeah alfox is a great example but i was actually thinking to the you know the other side of the indiana jones coin besides the treasure hunting is sort of this like you know uh you know let's what let's call them what they are the nazis and um on Ruthless Retribution right now, we have what looks like, you know, kind of like, I guess, um, something that looks similar to an SS officer in shadow, like in a gas mask, but they're very much in the background and out of focus. So I, I think that that's another great example. And then uh, I'm just happy also that there's a little bit of a, and this inspires me as to like when we actually sit down to write the story of X Seekers of Fortune and put it into like a comic book form or some other, you know, way of telling the long form version of the story. We do have uh, on Blade Edge Bargain, it's like kind of the trope of like, um, it A, it feels like it's out of a different time period, which I think expands the scope of what X Seekers of Fortune is. And it's not just in the that 1930s adventure serial. This would be maybe taking place in a flashback uh, if we did depict the scene in the story and it depicts like, you know, uh, one man getting worried as he realizes that this person who he's been talking to is starting to, you know, ask more than he's willing to give up. And I just think like that card by itself, it tells an entire story. And I think that that trope of like, you know, I, I think it happened often in Lost you know, that I really liked is like, you know, you get halfway through a scene and the big beat of the scene is realizing that this friendly uh, character that you thought was, you know, going to be helpful all of a sudden starts asking for things that they shouldn't be. And you realize that they are actually antag an antagonistic force. A hundred percent. Yeah. So it, was there any other uh, thoughts on that topic, Danny? Yeah, well, I had a question for you, if if I may uh, be so bold. Oh yeah, yeah, that's that's a, you be bold. <laughs> in in your mind, like, what is the actual theme of X Seekers of Fortune, and how do you think that we express that theme? If you even think there is one, I'm, I'm making a big assumption here, but assuming you believe there's a theme to X Seekers of Fortune, how do you think we represented that uh, through the mechanics and the art? I think it's still coming together and it might be something we're still talking about up until the final. Now, if you mean a theme as in like the theme of the setting, you know, it's, it, you know, a desert adventure, you know, kind of, uh, uh, you know, you know, going into tombs and finding, you know, ancient artifacts that ha are imbued with magic that we have long lost the, uh, the um, connection with. And th that was something that I think almost accidentally, even though we changed the theme from the, you know, like fantasy world, 
spellcrafting or spellcasting and wizards and spellcasting to you know the adventure world of uh, those those serials. I think we you know somehow kept the theme of you know looking back you know people going into dangerous places to reach into the past to find magic that has been lost to to us us uh, you know from this ancient civilization and i think that's like the theme if there's one thing that we keep coming back to it's sort of that idea which i think is like you know inherent in storytelling most of the time like you know going back and finding you know going stepping into the past to find something that we've forgotten to bring back to today is like practically part of the story circle. So it's hard to say it's a theme, but I think it's uh, a little more highlighted or uh, literalized in X Seekers of Fortune. I think there's also a lot of thematic elements that can be found in the late types. Um, mm. I think one of the things that we wanted to do, because, you know, themes in games is a little different, I think, than themes in, in movies, right? Because in a movie, you're telling the story of characters. And in a game, your job is to allow players to tell the story of themselves through the game, I think. At least that's, you know, kind of one of the conceits that we've been operating under when we've made Executors of Fortune. So it was really important, I think, for us to allow different players to have different choices they could make to represent themselves as different types of characters in the game. So, you know, there's the opportunity to play vision feats and feel like a visionary or myth feats and feel like you're, you know, someone who really puts a lot of stock in, in, in stories of the past. And likewise with Glyph and Rune. And, and, and then beyond that, the opportunity to play with cards like uh, Relics that let you choose whether you're going to play the card nobly or ruthlessly. Like You get an opportunity to express yourself in a lot of different ways in this game. Um, and that's something that I think you will continue to see in X Seekers of Fortune, that you know, to the extent that there's a, a theme, it's the theme is adventure and heroism and you're the hero or the antagonist depending on what you feel like playing that day you know it's it's kind of cool right like you get to show up every day and you don't have to play the same character you know you could if you want to if you want to be the same adventure every time you sit down at the table to play cool you know if today you feel like being the the super villain like i sometimes do <laughs> you can mm-hmm Oh yeah, you can definitely. You know, I mean, call them super villain or call it troll. You definitely fit the role. <laughs> All right. Well, I think I think that that gets us at the very least. Uh, it lays out a a path for us to touch back on some of those subjects uh, in the future as we move forward, especially with uh, developing artwork and talking about working with an artist. Uh, you know, hopefully that'll give people an idea of how we approach these problems. So why don't we go ahead and move on to something that we actually meant to talk about before the show even started. Uh, we usually like to give a teaser for next week, but we haven't really talked about what our next episode would be about. Now, this would be episode nine, Danny. Um, while we're sitting here, do you have any uh, thoughts about topics you want to you know, hit? Actually, I do. I very oh, much really? do. Okay, yeah, I would like, you know, one of the things that we've talked about in, on, in the show before, kind of touched on briefly, and I think it's something that, you know, we could do a whole episode on, so I'm proposing that we do next episode, okay. is uh, MVP, Minimum Viable Product, and the iterative process, and how that's really helped us um, build the game from the ground up, or as we've said, you know, find, find the game. So that would be my proposal. I think that sounds like a great idea. So yeah, next week on the official Mega Moth Studios podcast, we're going to be talking about minimum viable pro uh, product and uh, iterative process in design because it has served us very well 
and it's a terminology that we use every day for every every because what is a project but like thousands of mini projects that come across your table that you have to get done um and you know though these are terms that we use for every one of those little projects that comes our way so we'll get more into that next week so um, before we start wrapping up, Danny, I think you have something for me. I do. I'm very excited about this one because this one was very last minute. So one of the things that I've been thinking as I've actually gone back and had an opportunity to listen through the episodes is like, I really feel like those um, something randoms are at their best when we're playing a game. And okay. so I'd like to invite you to play a game. So so. Play Danny's little game. <laughs> so today's game is a game of games. Here's the idea, okay? Okay. I've got the name of three games and their genres, and I'm going to read them to you. I have made up the names of all of these games. I have assigned them a genre, and it will be up to you to tell me how they are played. Wait, you made up the game? So I'm, I'm creating the games in a way? Yes, I'm going to tell you what the game is called and what the genre is, and then you're going to tell me how to play it. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I guess let's go. Number one, it's called Teeth or Gums. It's a social deduction game. <laughs> okay, go on. That's all you get? You got to tell me Oh, 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 okay. <laughs> this is... You, you just got to kind of uh, with uh, the something randoms, especially when you're looking at still having to run some chores. You just have to roll with what the first thing that comes to your mind. Um, there's, oh my God, <laughs> every, <laughs> the thing is, is I'm not totally sure exactly all the ins and outs of every social deduction game. So I'm really dividing, de developing this on my own, uh, but I would imagine it has something to do with, uh, you know, the saying uh, in the land of the blind, the man with one eye is king. Yeah. Uh, well, what about in the, in the, all the blind men don't know, you know, what they're getting, if you will. I'm not going to go too into this because I'm realizing this we this might be pushing the bounds of what our podcast is yeah, capable this is a of being. Podcast. <laughs> it is a podcast, and podcasts have been dirty before. So we, you know, I'm going to let allow you us to figure this out in editing. Maybe I'll give you a second a second answer. But let's yeah. just say deducing who has teeth <laughs> and who has gums will be a lot more interesting when. I can already tell Will's gonna get the bleep out for that one. <laughs> um, and then, then I guess the other social deduction game that I think would be a lot more innocent would maybe be one that you could play with your kids, and it's like you know trying to get a group of kids to, you know, hide the fact that they've lost their, some of their teeth. <laughs> you know, so you're just trying to get you know kids to like you know kind of lie to each other about who you know how many teeth they have in their mouth to te teach general oral hygiene and tooth knowledge you know that sort of thing with kids who are might be at various stages of having lost teeth okay <laughs> all right you ready for number two <laughs> no <laughs> go ahead uh the game is called that slob bob and it's an area control game. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
All right. Uh, so this is a game where it has multiple maps. Um, you know, one of the maps could be, you know, Bob is a kitchen worker. So maybe he's, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's a line cook situation. One of the maps is his house where he lives with his roommates. But basically you have Bob and he's uh, you, you roll. First, you roll a dice to determine where Bob goes. Maybe Bob has an objective objective cards flipped up and Bob is coming home and he just wants to go and grab a beer from the refrigerator. Well, yeah, you, you, you roll, a you know, roll dice to get him through the living room to the kitchen, to the refrigerator. But you're also rolling a second set of dice in order to determine how much of Bob's, you know, just general, it, whether it be his general grossness, that's sort of like just sort of oozing out of him or the actual like him taking off his shirt, taking off his belt, throwing these things just haphazardly around is uh, determining how much mess he's creating. And your job, I think, is to be uh, passive aggressive in your dealing with Bob and going behind him and trying to pick everything up before he reaches, you know, the kitchen, gets the the beer and looks back and, you know, sees the mess that he's left. You you want to you want to be like, uh, you know, the great passive aggr aggressive roommate that you are and clean up his entire mess and then make it seem like no big deal. And uh, the same for the kitchen, you know, it's like he's working a shift, he's work going from station to station, leaving behind his, you know, doing his job poorly, and you're going behind him and cleaning up the stations and trying to keep them clean. How do you win? Uh, it's like a point system, I imagine, game where it's like by at the end of the round, you get you get so many points deducted from your your run of the round, and then uh, you're uh, uh, I, would, I don't want to say teammates, but the people you're playing against, then they take their turn, you know, and, and you're really just hoping to get to like get good roles. I think this is like a I want to say this like has a little bit more of a party element. It's not like super strategic. You're just trying. You're just like, you know, kind of making fun of how messy Bob is and how incompetent or competent you are at cleaning up after him. Hmm. That's all, that's all Bob. OK, OK, OK. Last question. Last yeah. one. This one is called, Oh God, What's in My Hands? And it's a Euro game. Well, I... <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't know Euro games well enough to uh, totally answer this. Uh, I have yet, I don't think I've played one unless Settlers of Catan counts for a Euro game, but I feel like it's kind of an exception to the rule of what Euro games usually are like. Um, but I imagine that you're, it takes place at a, you know, a factory in this factory, you don't know, you know, you don't know what it produces. It produces uh, some sort of slime and uh, you're these. So, see, the, the funny thing is with a name like this, I'm imagining much more of a American children's game where you you like, you know, have different chemicals that can con concoct different like viscous levels of slime. And you're supposed to like, you know, just sort of describe it to your uh, your friends. What is that about? Uh, but this is a Euro game and Euro games are all about complexity and resource management and all that sort of stuff. So, um, maybe it's a Euro game. They're dealing with things. They haven't uh, totally addressed some of the atrocities that have happened in their country. So maybe it's, uh, actually a game about, you know, the horrors of war and, uh, the, the resources like, you know, throughout the game, you're just tra you're bartering resources that are abstract. But then at the end of the game it's revealed that the resources were humans of different types, you know, adult, adult man, adult woman, child, adult child, or young, ch you know, boy, child, girl, child. You realize these were the, the, uh, resources you were dealing with. So at the end of the game, you realize what's on your hand. It's blood. 
Ein Deutscher. Well, you did remarkably well, even though I'm not sure how many of those match the description of the game. I think Herman's going to be really upset with us, but that's... I guess the area, I think I lost the plot on the area control uh, for sure. I never had the plot on the hero game, I will admit. I need to play one first, but the area control game, I think I kind of lost the plot. A yeah, as you through. describe a euro, euro game, you should just start describing Warcraft. Hey, man, that's, it, 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 those sort of things, you know, rest on the collective unconscious, you know, they have to be dealt with. <laughs> yeah, 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 through tabletop fun. <laughs> Where else? Where else? Yeah, yep. Okay. All right, folks. So I think that's, I think that wraps up something random. So we're going to jump out of that chaos and into the end of the show, which is quite formulaic and quite uh, uh, scripted. So. Our social medias, if you want to follow us, which we highly recommend you do, you can find us at TikTok at Megamoth Studios, Instagram at X underscore Seekers underscore Fortune. On Facebook, it's just X Seekers of Fortune, one, uh, not one word, you know, normal spaces. Uh, you can play the beta version of X Seekers of Fortune for free at tabletopia.com. Uh, and if you're looking for people to play with, check out our Discord server. You're going to find all that information on our official website, megamothstudios.com where you can find links to all of these things. Um, as of right now, we do not have any upcoming events officially on the calendar, but we will keep you up to date on upcoming events that we have lined up um, via our, you know, our Facebook group, via our Instagram and our TikTok. So keep, uh, keep an eye on those. Discord all as right. well. Tuesday Night X is an upcoming event every Tuesday. Yes, every Tuesday from 8 p.m. to midnight, we're going to be playing X Seekers of Fortune in our Discord. So everybody come out, find your uh, find a friend to play with, and turn them into your rival. Uh, Danny, is there anything else you'd like to add before we go? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I just want to clarify, 8 p.m. to midnight Central Standard Time, just because for folks that are in different time zones, you might come to find us at midnight, and we will be long asleep. So uh, 8, 8 p.m. to midnight on Discord uh, Central Standard Time. Yes. Thank you very much for that clarification, Danny. Well, if there's nothing else, uh, this has been, uh, my co-host has been Danny Ayub. I have been Joel Watts, and I just wanted to remind you that you have to start somewhere, so why not here? Happy shuffling. <laughs>